This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. All right, real quick before we get started on the show, I'm just going to talk about Treeline Academy. You've heard me say it. I can't even tell you how many times. Um, Mark Livesey is treelineacademy.net. That's treelineacademy.net. Sign up. Use the promo code PC2020. Save yourself 20 bucks. Can't say it enough. It's awesome. Amazing. Most comprehensive e-scouting course out there. Check it out for yourself. Sign up. Use promo code PC2020. And now let's get to the show. Okay, so I'm sitting here and I am talking to Kevin Estella. And if you don't know who he is, because he doesn't maybe have that big of a presence in the hunting world, but if you step into field craft or survival stuff, he is well known. So Kevin, you want to go ahead and like really introduce yourself here? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on here. Uh, my name is Kevin Estella. I am a, uh, well, soon to be a full-time survival instructor. Uh, I'm currently in the process of switching over. I've been a high school history teacher for the past 14 years. Um, and along that way, I've worked at the Wilderness Learning Center as a lead survival instructor under Marty Simon. Uh, I started my company, Estella Wilderness Education, in 2011. I've written over 150 magazine articles and 20 different magazine titles. Uh, I have a best-selling book, 101 Skills You Need to Survive in the Woods. Uh, I've been a subject matter expert on the History Channel, uh, a couple times, and a uh, regular featured guest on a on a number of podcasts and, and presentations. So uh, I'm kind of like your your jack of all trades, but my specialty is wilderness survival, and I just enjoy the hell out of sharing my skills with with people that are willing to learn. 
Makes me wonder, how the heck did I get a guy like you to come on to my podcast? <laughs> uh, you asked. Uh, actually, I think it was on Instagram. I I had <laughs> said, hey, any questions? And you're like, you want to come on the podcast? And I was like, yeah, DM me. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, it's as simple as that. Uh, you know, after I put that on there, I think I got two or three other requests through podcasts. And I told them, I'm like, hey, look. I have no problem talking to you guys, but right now, like, I'm literally in the process of moving and doing a whole bunch of stuff. Like, I will be on your podcast. You have my word, but it's going to be like another month or so because I just got to, we should spread this out. You know, it'll, it'll be more exciting if there's news <laughs> than uh, doing like five in a row. Right. Absolutely. Then they'll all end up being somewhat the same, <laughs> but, um, so you're moving to quite the geographic, strategic ge- geographic location. Absolutely. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've I've always kind of liked that region for uh, for that reason, but mostly because I just like isolation. I like getting getting away from people and being able to breathe, and that's why I liked outdoors. And I'm gonna just go out on a whim and say you probably like the same, huh? <laughs> Yeah, you know, Connecticut is gorgeous. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I'm very fortunate to have grown up in, in New England. We have all four seasons, legitimately. We have a, a true fall, which is gorgeous. We have winter, which isn't horrible. Uh, you know, it's it's not the, the worst winter you're going to experience. We have a spring. We have a summer. Uh, so we're able to experience all four all four seasons. But one of the issues with Connecticut, and I know the audience is largely a hunting audience, is that there's really not a lot of great public hunting areas that don't get overpopulated with hunters that are all rushing to get there. Um, you know, for a while, I sat on the Conservation Advisory uh, Council for the state, and it was the biggest struggle to get Sunday hunting. And eventually, it got down to the point where they said, look, uh, we have a lot of hunters that want to use a very limited amount of land, and not everyone has Saturday off, and you got you got to space it out or else we're going to have accidents. So... You know, Connecticut can be a little overpopulated at times, even though it's a very green state. Um, but it's nothing like what Utah and out west is going to be like. No, that's awesome. A few months. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you probably understand some of the struggle. I mean, I live in Illinois, so it is one percent public land of all the land is one percent public land, and wow. I live an hour south of Chicago. So imagine that many people in that area. And the only public land to hunt is right around me. So, yes, I feel your struggle on that for sure. It definitely fills up. So my question, are you going to start elk hunting once you get out there to Utah? Oh, that's, that's <laughs> in the words of my friend Jerry Young, uh, I'll, I'll say, is a frog's butt water tight? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm definitely going to do that. I mean, uh, whether it's through through lottery or it's, you know, through, through an outfitter, uh, that there's no doubt about it. Um, it's such beautiful land. And I mean, I'm a, I'm a backpacker. I like going out into the woods. I love going up into the mountains and I would even go in. I mean, I'm sure people will say like, Oh yeah, but don't you want to catch that? Or don't you want to shoot that elk and harvest the elk? And yeah, I would, but just to have that, that freedom to walk around in the mountains up there, we're so far away. Um, Oh, that, that's a, that's a definite without, without question. That's cool. That's awesome. So we were talking a little bit earlier um, in conversation before we started the podcast, but can you kind of talk about like your hunting and, you know, what you started hunting and all that kind of stuff and then go into like, you know, your archery now? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, I grew up, 
I grew up in Connecticut. Um, again, I, we don't have a lot of public hunting land here. We, we have a lot of, uh, state parks and we've got, I mean, uh, Onyx is my best friend, right. To keep right. me from, from getting in trouble, crossing over into some multi multi-millionaires property or anything like that. Um, but as a kid, you know, my dad grew up in the Philippines. Uh, he grew up there post-World War II, Japan, you know, hunting and fishing in the jungle. And, you know, he would tell me as a little kid all these different stories about, like, oh, I'd go into the woods with my air rifle, or, oh, we'd take a twenty-two rifle out and we'd go, we'd get food for the night. So, I mean, that really kind of sparked my interest as a kid for hunting. Um, you know, I was always into fishing when I was a kid. My Uncle Ray and a good family friend, uh, uh, you know, we called him Diamond Jim. He he brought us out fishing all the time. And it was great to learn that. Um, but really, my hunting experience didn't pick up until I was like a preteen teenager. Um, and the reason for that was is that my dad. I mean, my dad's a, a physician. He's going to be 82 in a couple months. Um, still practicing physician, but after medical school, he really didn't want to take the life of anything because he found you know life to be so interesting. Uh, so when I told him as a kid, like, hey, dad, I want to go kill stuff, uh, he's like, oh, okay, uh, yeah, sure. And, you know, we went through the hunter safety class together. And, I mean, he had all that experience from from overseas, but nothing here in, in the U.S. I mean, he came here in 1965. So I started off bird hunting, pheasant hunting. Um, and then over the years, you know, I did a lot of stuff like down south, like uh, various pig hunts and uh, then you know, at one point I ended up overseas in uh, South Africa on a safari doing a management hunt, which was out of this world because I got to work with a, a really, really incredible professional hunter over there. And I was able to deliver, you know, all different types of planes, animals to the Amasango Career School. Uh, and then these kids who go to school there were able to eat all the meat that we harvested. So uh, that's through a program called Hunter's Care. So after that, I came back and I was like, all right, let me get into more of the bigger game stuff here. And I mean, I, I've traveled, I've done some stuff. And one of my good buddies is like, hey, I got this access to this huge property in Kent. So we started hunting there and, you know, harvested, uh, you know, deer there. So now I'm in the like, okay, let me expand my season as long as I can. And <laughs> I don't care if anyone's listening that could get me in trouble because I've already put in my two weeks notice. But during uh, one of the online meetings that I kind of didn't have to really be there, but I did have to check in. I may, I may have been in the process of getting my uh, online hunter safety course done, uh, watching all the videos, answering the questions and stuff like that. And then earlier this year, I finished up the bow hunter safety course to uh, get me that, that permit that allows me to hunt with a crossbow here in Connecticut. And trust me, I know there are purists out there that are like, Hey, listen, you shouldn't be hunting with a crossbow, you know, use the struggle stick, use the, you know, the traditional bow or whatever. The way I look at it is, you know, I'm, I'm new to the archery game and maybe I'll be at your ultimate level and, you know, maybe I'll kiss your ring at some point, but for now, let me have some fun. And, uh, I really don't care what they have to say. So, uh, I'm going to do, do it my way. And, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> doesn't bother me at all. The way I look at it is hunting is conservation and and no matter what you do if you're if you you're helping make a herd healthy and you're getting out there and you're enjoying it and and I've said it on other podcasts, who cares? Get out there. I don't care yeah, what people and, hunt. It doesn't matter to me one bit. 
Yeah, and that that drives me drives me crazy when I hear people say like, okay, uh, well, what's the best rifle? What's the best hunting boot? And it's like, how about you focus on you? And it comes across maybe kind of like me being a little standoffish, but I say, all right, now I, I've done this in front of an entire group of people where a person will raise their hand in the audience and be like, hey, well, what do you think is the best boot? And I'll say, okay, a size 13, you know, and I, I start describing <laughs> my foot and the guy's like, now the guy might be a hundred pounds lighter than me and a foot shorter. And I'm like, yeah, size 13, this and that. And the guy's like, no, 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 no. I'm like, oh, you didn't say for you. And then I start asking him questions and it's like, don't worry what I use, right? Like we're all different. The glove that fits my hand won't fit yours, right? Find what works for you and just be happy with that. Like you don't have to, to follow a mold of someone else who you admire, you look up to. I mean, you might get some ideas, but you might find that the person that you respect, they've got something that will absolutely not work for you. And, you know, there's an old expression, never meet your heroes. Uh, you know, never, never use your hero's gear. Cause <laughs> what if it doesn't work for you? Right. And you see what's crazy is you see that so much in like the hunting industry, especially, you know, there's, oh, there's yeah. people that I look up to and, and, and it's like, Oh man, yeah. Oh, he uses this or he uses that. But, and I've tried it. And I mean, backpacks whatever and i've recently gotten rid of them and now i'm just like you know what i'm gonna try what works for me and especially the same thing with boots some people like crispy some people like kenetrax some people like this or that i ended up finding a completely different somewhat off the wall brand that i ended up liking and i'm going on my third year of them and the waterproofing hasn't even leaked yet so you know it's just (laughs) Normally you only get like two out of them. So I feel like I'm doing really good right now, except now they discontinued them. So I think that's, 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 I think part of like a larger problem though, with all these outdoor industries is there, there are so many clones of these like really, really famous fishermen, hunters, uh, survival guys and whatnot. And, you know, we want to look the part, right? We want (laughs) to, We want to look like we have the same gear that they have, but we lack maybe the physical attributes or we lack the awareness of, you know, different ways of stalking or reading the wind or whatever it may be. So we look the part, but we can't, you know, we can't follow suit in terms of all of the abilities. Um, But that's never really mentioned by a lot of the people that are just interested in saying like, hey, you should buy, you know, the gear that has my logo on it, right? Yeah. Instead of telling the person like, "Hey, why don't you spend, you know, a good amount of time practicing with a basic kit, learn the foundations, and then if, if you really feel like it's still for you, then jump to the next level and get what you need." But unfortunately, a lot of these pro outdoorsmen uh, in in multiple different fields, it's all about, you know, how much can I pad my wallet with some sucker that's going to buy my product? Is it's got cool antlers on it, or you know, or something yeah. like that? You yeah. Know? And, by the way, if you couldn't tell, I'm like the world's worst merchant. Like I, I'm always like telling people not to buy stuff and focus on skills, but you know, it, it is what it is. So no, I'll, I'll tell you right now. Like <laughs> when I, when I first started this podcast, I was like, I want zero influence on this podcast. I don't want anything. And then some people started talking to me a little bit and I was like, you know what? No, I, I want to do something that only something I truly believe in. So really, I've only got like two things going right now, and it's not like it's making me money or anything, but promo code type stuff, and and it's something that I've learned in a person that I've learned so, so much from. It's ridiculous, and it's like, how could I not support something like that and 
maybe inspire somebody else. But other than that, I mean, that's not what it's about. It's about talking to people, learning and sharing it with people. And that's, you know, that's what this is all about. And I love it. And, and if it never makes me a dime, I don't really care. So (laughs) here we are anyway. um, So let's kind of (laughs) talk, let's kind of talk a little bit more about that crossbow then. So the one thing I always, that irks me that I hope people understand about a crossbow. It's the only thing I have a gripe with is a lot of people who shoot guns pick up that crossbow and think that arrow is going to do the same damage that a bullet is going to do and they shoot the crossbow like a rifle. And I have seen more bad shots from people on neighboring properties (laughs) that I've hunted on with a crossbow than I've done with my compound bow. And as of this year, I have not, it's been 2020 has been a bad year. Let's just say that all around it's been a bad year. And, and, um, my camp confidence was kind of lacking up until the other day, um, put a bad shot on something and it made me sick. But, um, I, I just, so tell me and promise me that you're going to think of shot angles when you take a shot with that crossbow. (laughs) Yeah, and you know, and that's something that people they don't spend the time to to learn. It can, it's it's all about putting the time in to to develop the skill. Now, I'm a I'm a big rifle shooter. Uh, in addition to you know hunting, I've taken a lot of precision rifle classes. I've done a lot of hybrid AR classes. You know, up to 600 yards, precision rifle, thousand plus yards, right? And you know, part of precision rifle shooting is understanding your bullet drop, right? Understanding the the external ballistics of that round and how it performs. And, you know, now people tend to focus on, okay, I've got a ballistics computer. I can just plug in my information with some atmospheric information. And now, boom, I can tell you what my shooting solution is out to any distance. Well, that's the, the new way of doing it. But my shooting mentor, when I first got into this years ago, taught me the analog method where he's like, okay, we're going to do a walk back. And you're going to measure, you're going to use the same point of aim, and you're going to shoot at that same spot, and we're going to measure how far that bullet drops down. Well, you can apply that same formula of learning your crossbow, uh, and and it's a great uh, bit of knowledge because, as you said, people think like, okay, I've got a crossbow, it's got a pistol grip, essentially, Um, I'm shouldering it like a rifle, well, it's going to work like a rifle, but there's a significant difference, uh, you know, even in a matter of three or four yards, uh, once you get out past 40 yards, how much that arrow is going to drop. I mean, you could completely miss the vitals on a, on a deer uh, without question. And the other thing is people get into crossbow hunting or bow hunting uh, and they think like, okay, I'm going to kill this deer. It's going to fall in its place, <laughs> thinking that it's going to carry that same uh, you know, hydrostatic shock that a bullet would that's traveling, you know, 2,600 or 2,800 feet per second. Well, that crossbow bolt, when it's flying at 30 yards, might only be going 300 feet per second. Like, I have a recurve crossbow. I don't have a, a compound. Um, I mean, granted, that's still a lot faster than a lot of traditional bows, but it's not going to cause a, a deer to to fall over like an arcade game. You know, it's, <laughs> it's still going to run. So, uh, again, I think people see it as like a as like a gateway, like as a as an easy way into the the sport, into the, the pastime, but they don't think of the second and third order of effects 
right? Like, okay, you just shot that deer. That's awesome. Okay, are you prepared to like sit back and wait for that thing to bleed out? Okay, have you ever, ever done any uh, tracking on a blood trail? Okay, you haven't. You probably want to think about this before you pull that trigger. You know, like it's it's so funny that, to hear people say like, "Oh, I'm going to do this," and then you ask them the question, "And then what?" And they might have an answer, <laughs> but then you say, "And then what?" And then they they start running out of answers, and you can see the wheels are turning in their heads because they, you know, they they've never been through that scenario. Uh, and even if they've never been through it physically, you can at least experience something mentally and work your way through a problem um, before you have to experience it for the first time in front of you. Yes, definitely. And I mean, what what I think is so cool is we're in an age now to where we've got more resources at our fingertips than we've ever, ever, ever had before. And I think that's pretty cool. And I'm starting to see a trend. And I've kind of talked about it on other podcasts with other guests, but a lot more adult onset hunters, somebody that that doesn't doesn't necessarily have a mentor, but you've got all these resources. And I've, and I've told because some of them keep talking about how they're at a disadvantage and I've told them I'm like look you're an adult so you consciously made the decision that you want to do something and once you put forth that effort and you make that conscious decision you're at more of an advantage than a kid that just tags along with somebody and half haphazardly listens or pays attention you're the one who's actually learning this so you're going to pay attention and I think I, I've just seen results from some of these people that do that and I'm like man they are they're going somewhere and it's pretty cool to see I just think it's neat yeah do you remember that movie The Edge I do yes that was an awesome movie I love that movie yeah <laughs> so this is a, this is the second time I'm going to bring it up and I'm going to give a big shout out to my buddy uh, Lieutenant Mike who literally has it saved on his phone and we'll be camping and he'll pull up like what one man can do, another man can do. Uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of these people that you're talking about sound like that character Charles, right? He just does a ton of reading. He's got a photographic memory. Um, you know, these are people who they've done so much research ahead of time that when they get into the field, they just know how to do things because it's all theoretical. But they're just going to apply, you know, their their muscles and their hands and whatnot to to practice, right? They're just going to do what they've read about. Um, not so much in the hunting world because I tend to, to hunt by myself or with my buddies that are all experienced. But when I'm in uh, a community like the survival community or the bushcraft community where I'm teaching newcomers for the first time, hey, this is how you're going to do that, I'll find myself saying something and the students will finish my sentence. And I'm like, I thought you said you've never taken a class. You're like, oh, no, no, but I've watched this on TV or <laughs> I've seen this on YouTube or I've read this book. And it's kind of cool because – you already know they've had one exposure. And as a teacher, as someone who you're trying to, you know, help someone out and learn, you sometimes it's good for them to be a blank slate. Sometimes it's bad for them to, uh, you know, have these preconceived notions. But if they've already had an exposure and they have one way of visualizing it before you present the, the final product to them, in many cases that, that's so fantastic because, you know, a lot of the hard work has already been done. Um, and it also demonstrates how willing they are to learn. So, yeah, I, I completely agree that someone who's done a lot of the reading might be at more of an advantage than the kid who has one earbud in listening to his uncle or his grandfather. <laughs> and, you know, he's Snapchatting, you know, the hot girl in his chemistry class that he thinks likes him, but she's really after the buddy. Right. <laughs> like, so. Yeah, I agree. Which was also in that movie as well. So if you guys haven't oh seen the movie God. The Edge, who, who was uh, it? Was uh... El, El McPherson. Yes. <laughs> I will tell you. 
If if I'm married to Elle McPherson and I find out that Alec Baldwin, who number one is probably is not hanging around my anyway, wife, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, doing a little bit more than hanging, I would drop him in that bear trap, and you know, it, it's almost like, oh god, I would drop him in there twice. Uh, I'd, I'd pick him up and be like, oh, I slept. Oh, you fell. You you, you speared your other leg. I mean, that's Elle McPherson. Uh, I mean, don't get me started on this one. I know we're trying to talk about hunting and, and survival and whatnot, but. You know, we just hit a we hit a sore spot. Like if if Elle McPherson's my my wife, and I see a watch that says for all the nights, oh oh boy, uh, yeah, I'll see red. So I'll just real quick say the movies that I have on my phone. So in my truck, I keep a D- DVD, and I've got a DVD player. So if I park my truck and I'm camping or something, or uh, truck camping on a hunting trip, it's Rambo in the truck, and then on my phone I keep. Heartbreak Ridge, and I also Fantastic. and I also keep Solo Hunter, so some TV shows in there too. But Solo Hunter and Heartbreak Ridge is on the phone all the time. But <laughs> yeah, Ram- Rambo is is a movie that I grew up with, and you know I did a trip in 2015 to where they shot First Blood, and I took a, a modern day version of the the Lyle knife made by New Martin, the late New Martin. And I found like the Rambo Cave. So we've all got these movies that, you know, inspire us to do things. And, and that's one movie I can watch any time of day. Uh, if it's on at one o'clock in the morning, if I'm going through the channels for, I, you know, call it a night, I will stay up and I'll watch that until 2.30 or 3 in the morning. Yep. Uh, just because I feel like it's, it's out of respect. You got to do that. Right. So let me ask you that, because I'm pretty sure I saw you posted something. Is that the original, like the original type knife from the movie or is that like a reproduction that you have like is, so, is, is so that the original the bud knife k? Made... is that the bud k or what is oh that? no no definitely not a bud k okay. uh <laughs> yeah so so bud k i mean a lot of people know bud k because you get the magazines like 12 times a year and you know there's always some you know super pakistani uh you know, Damascus blade or something in there for $4. And you're like, how is that even possible? But, uh, no, it's the, the knife that I carried out there. Um, it was made by, by Newt Martin, uh, Newt Martin passed away, uh, three, two or three years ago from leukemia. He was a Navy guy. He was a big fan of hollow handled knives and both he and his dad, uh, Ed Martin, who is still alive and still making knives, Martin knives. Uh, you know, I contacted them. I'm like, look, I was just in Bellingham, Washington, teaching a course. I saw signs for hope. I'm planning on going to hope to do Rambo skills as a Rambo fan for, you know, 30 something years. I'm like, what are the chances you want to sponsor me by sending me a knife to use on this? And I'm, I'm thinking like, okay, Newt Martin is going to tell me I can borrow a knife, but then send it right back. He goes, dude, we are making you a knife. You're going to have a great time. Like <laughs> he told me to keep it afterwards. Um, the knife that Newt made, instead of being, uh, I believe the originals were 440C steel, which is not a bad steel, but it's kind of dated. The knife that I have uh, is S35VN, which is a nice. considered like a super steel. Yep. And the way that Newt makes it, the funny story with these hollow handle knives, people think they're garbage, but Newt made it in a way where uh, he threaded the tang of the knife. He then screwed that tang into the, the cylinder handle he fills the handle with an epoxy, like a like a JB weld, which is essentially harder than steel, um, stronger than steel. And now you have all that epoxy that's going in between the threads and through the hole in the tang. 
and it creates like a like a monolithic uh, like bolt that just holds everything together. Well, eventually the Germans, the Boker company, uh, Boker Knives, they wanted to buy the rights to making a hollow-handled knife, but they're like, oh, but we don't trust how strong it is. So Nuke gave them some samples, and the Germans kept putting the knife blade into a vise and using like a cheater bar to, to bend the knife. They broke the knife plenty of times, like they broke the blade because you're going to break a knife when you put it in a mechanical vise, but they were never able to break it at the junction between the, the handle and the blade. And they basically were like, this is incredible. I don't know how you did it. And they wrote him the check right there. Um, so when people say, oh, these hollow handled knives like Ramble Carrot are junk, I challenge anyone, anyone to buy a Boker Apparel. It's a $135 knife. Break that thing and, and tell me if you could break it at that, that junction the way that the Germans did. And I guarantee they never will. Uh, so if they can't do that in a, in a lab, we're not going to do that in the woods. True. Rambo must have thought it was junk, though, because when he was with the Afghans, it was, it was a wood handle. <laughs> but, but anyway, man, I digress from all that. <laughs> Way off topic, but it's cool. I like it. I like the conversation. But let's get into a little bit about if, if, if somebody was wanting to get into hunting, but they had absolutely no wilderness skills for, for at all and mm-hmm. never done anything like that, what would be some of the things that you talked to them or said, hey, look, you may want to learn this first, especially if you're going to be backpack hunting or something like that? Okay, so, so right off the bat, I'm going to say one of the most important things to do is to file a float plan. Learn to tell people where you're going um, because what happens so many times with hunters, and we're guilty of this all the time, You'll be out and you'll be hanging out with friends and you're saying, look, I'm going over to Mountain A, right? And let's just say hypothetically it's called Mountain A. And along the way, you're having breakfast and someone's like, oh, no, no, no. I've heard that nothing's happening on Mountain A. You should really go over to Mountain C. So instead of calling home and telling your girlfriend or your wife, like, look, I'm not hunting in Mountain A. I'm going to Mountain C. Well, now when you get into trouble on Mountain C and people are looking for you on Mountain A, they'll never find you on Mountain C because you never told someone responsible. And by responsible, it's not your five-year-old kid that's not paying attention, right? Someone <laughs> responsible is someone who is going to raise the red flag when you don't, when you don't show up. Um, so I think that's one of the important skills. It's not as attractive as, say, like fire starting, but it's probably one of the most important skills is let people know where you're going. Um, we're pretty resilient as creatures. Like we can spend a night out in the woods if we're properly clothed. We might be a little discomforting uh, or discomforted. Uh, I can't talk tonight. Uh, <laughs> uncomfortable, but uh, you know we'll still survive. Um, you know I would say that learning to make fire is very important. Every hunter should have fire starting equipment and learn how quickly wood, uh, wood burns through the night. So you have to realize like, okay, I can't make it out of the woods tonight. I need to collect a lot of wood. I need to make a small fire and sit close to it as opposed to a big fire and sit far away. Um, Fire starting is really important. Navigation skills are way up there. Uh, Truly learning how to read a map. Um, I would say reading a map is more important than using a compass. Um, Because if you can read a map, you can at least orient the map to the surroundings and get an idea of how far you have to go. you know, or the direction that you need to travel. So I would say reading maps, you know, just spending a lot of time looking at topography, getting a map of your hometown and learning what that hometown looks like in topographic form, uh, way up there in terms of skill. Um, And then I think another skill uh, after fire and and navigation is uh, learning to hydrate. 
right? We're all guilty of it where, you know, we go out without a water bottle. It's like, I'm only an hour away from my car. I don't need water. I don't need extra weight. I'm going to be carrying back an animal or dragging an animal. I, I really think it's important you carry the equipment on you to boil water. Uh, that water bottle can be used to heat your body, right? You can, in the middle of the night, boil water, put it uh, next in, in between your cloth, uh, clothing layers, not directly up against the skin, but that can keep you warm. So uh, there are all these little skills that are covered in like a basic bushcraft class or a, a basic survival class. They 100% will pay off uh, as for a hunter um, just because anything can happen hunting. I mean, you could, uh, you could be out in the middle of a field and be looking at your watch saying, all right, I can legally hunt until sunset. And then you, the minute you walk into the woods, to try to get back on the trail to go home, you realize how dark, how much darker it is in the wood line than it, it was out in the open. And now you get lost. So, I mean, as something as simple as that can easily happen to anyone. Um, and a, a base foundation of skills are so incredibly important to have. Oh yeah. That's so like one of the things you mentioned is like the navigation or, or actually study. So if I go to a place, I like to e-scout at first. And when I'm doing mm-hmm. that, I take mental note of certain features or things that you could use as a backstop or, or a reference as far as like, okay, if I hit this and prime example of it would be, I battery died on my phone. So I didn't have the Onyx or the base map to use to try and get my way back. And it, and it was so cold out that I always carry like a charger pack with me in my pack, but it was so cold that that didn't work that day. And I'm walking along and I'm, and I see some tacks that somebody put in to mark a trail. I was like, Oh yeah, I'll just follow those. That makes sense. I ended up getting turned around so bad following that person's tacks rather than going what my gut told me to go that I ended up way off base. But instead of freaking out, I ended up right at the river. And I was like, okay, well, now I know I just got to follow this river and follow it to a bend. And if I take a hard left and go up, I'll end up hitting, running into the parking lot. And it worked out. But I know of cases where people and even people that I personally know that have gone down to their own hunting property and have gotten lost and had to call their brother or their friends and go, it's so dark. I don't know where I am. It's too dark. I don't know where I am and freaking out. And the first thing that popped into my head was, well, just walk until you hit a fence line or, or, or <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're on a couple hundred acres. It's not like you're on 10,000 acres. Just walk until you hit a fence line and follow that fence line. You're either going to end up in a field or at a road. But some people, they don't think that they can't keep their wherewithal about them. And, and like, what would you say to somebody like that or you know how would you address that to try and teach somebody or improve well i mean you you just said it um i mean here in connecticut we if you walk in a if you're capable of walking in a straight line you're going to bump into some type of man-made feature um but one of the things that that i've seen happen on many many courses when we have been uh, taking people through the woods and we'll say like, okay, you're going to get to a stone wall. And when you get to the stone wall, you're going to hug the stone wall and you're going to travel, you know, say due east. Well, people won't realize that that stone wall is what they're stepping over. Um, because we have a tendency when we're, when we're walking, you know, we, we don't look from different planes and different perspectives. Um, you know, we always want to see things from six feet up in the air, you know, or however tall we are. Um, 
it's so important as a hunter, as someone who's is into observation and I'll never claim to be a tracker, right? Like that's not my specialty. Like, you know, I'll save that title for people who are legitimate, like man trackers and they're, they're working for like the government to do that. Um, but if you're in that tracking community, you don't look for tracks at, you know, eye level, you get down to the ground and you see it from a very different perspective and you can see different, you know, reliefs in the ground. Um, so I think what you said was, was just spot on. I mean, I don't think it needs any more elaboration. You, it, it's so easy to to believe that a trail is correct, but we have this gut instinct that's kept us safe for millions of years. And sometimes just following your gut uh, is often what's going to keep you safe. I mean, one of the greatest books that I recommend everyone to read, and especially young women going off to college, because there are more male predators and female predators, uh, they need to read the book, The Gift of Fear. Um, because it's all about trusting your gut and how we are very logical creatures. And we want to, we want to kind of answer everything in logical terms, but sometimes you just tell yourself, no, this is screwed up. I don't like this. And you trust your gut and it will usually keep you alive. That's a good point. That's definitely a good point. So what would you say as far as like, um, first aid type stuff? Cause I mean, one of the things that Mike Glover has taught me through listening to him talk and I don't know why I never had it in my pack before, in my hunting pack, because Turn I always, get, huh? yes, absolutely, right? <laughs> it, I mean, it yep. makes sense, especially when you're bow hunting. You've got a yeah. freaking sharp object on the end of a pointy stick, and I have cut my knee before with the broadhead and sliced it open and didn't even realize it until I started feeling just something warm going down my leg in 20-degree weather, going, oh, that's yeah. not right. And then I look and I'm like, oh man, this is bad. But it's one of those things that you don't think of in, until that situation. And even then, after that happened, I still didn't even think of it because I was close enough to my truck. I went and took care of the animal real quick and, and drove and got it stitched up. But I mean, a prime example, I don't know if you like follow anything in the hunting industry, but a guy named Dave Brinker was with two of his buddies and they were elk hunting. And I believe they were out in Oregon or Washington. And he ended up somehow dropping an arrow out of his quiver and um, some uh, some ferns or something held it into place and he walked right into it and it put it through his calf. Oh, no, I haven't heard that story, but I, I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you think about it, you're carrying a tool that is designed to cause blood loss and, you know, there are times where you're going to hear stories of guys that are going to fall out of tree stands, right? Their legs are going to get tired. They're going to get cold. Uh, I've known a couple of people to fall out of tree stands because they've, they've fallen asleep. Um, and there's a very good chance, right? Murphy's law. If you're going to fall, you're probably going to fall on something that you're holding in your hand, <laughs> you know, like, especially if you've got something that's got like a, like a, like a tether on it or like a, like a stabilizing brace or anything like that. So, um, you know, a lot of the tourniquets that are out there are, are fantastic and they weigh almost nothing because the turnbuckles are made out of polymer. Um, and, you know, it's great, great insurance to have because we may encounter an arrow by accident. We may encounter someone in worst case scenario, someone mistakes us for a deer. Uh, and let's say it's not an arrow, it's a bullet, right? We may walk up on an animal 
and realize that another animal is walking up on it as well, or or maybe an animal attacks us, or maybe that animal isn't down, we haven't waited long enough, and we get impaled by an antler. You know what I mean? Like, there there could be any number of, of reasons, any number of reasons why you have blood loss. Um, so in terms of first aid, what I recommend is everyone should, like, if you're a hunter, you should always, always have bandages for fingertips. Um, and the reason for that is, is that our fingers are, are super sensitive. When we're cleaning animals, we're constantly using our knives. And, you know, especially if you are working on an animal that you've had to come back to, right. And you've already, you've already dressed it out, but now you're, now you're skinning it. Well, that animal's cold and it's going to transfer so easily to your hands and your hands are going to be numb. Um, you know, one expression I, I heard an old timer say is, uh, Always touch with the blade first. Don't touch with your fingers, um, and that prevents you from cutting yourself. Um, but you always have injuries to your fingers. Um, you know, if you're a bushcrafter, outdoorsman, like you know, survival guy, you're carving with your knife. So the place that you're most likely to carve and get injuries, I'm sorry, most places you're going to most likely get injuries are going to be your fingertips. So fingertip bandages, a tourniquet for major blood loss. Um, I'm a big, big proponent of carrying. Uh, gauze pads for your eyes. Um, I, I've I've seen it plenty of times. I've experienced a, a corneal abrasion, and it's a game changer. It will it'll take you out of commission. Um, it, it's really really bad. I've heard a doctor say the three worst pains a person can experience: corneal abrasion, and this is no in particular order. Uh, childbirth, which I have no experience in, uh, passing a kidney stone, and corneal abrasion. I've heard those as the three worst. And it's a, it's a common injury to be walking behind someone and for them to not hold the branch and you walk into the branches, it whacks you in the eye. Um, so injuries to the hands, injuries to the eyes, um, major bleeding, all very important. Um, what's really important is carry an emergency blanket if you do treat someone for blood loss um, because a common, common thing that happens with blood loss is hypothermia. Um, so you need to maintain that person's core temperature and if you're going to put them down on the ground, you need to insulate them from the ground. Um, so people who have been shot haven't died necessarily from the blood loss directly. It's from the, the hypothermia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So uh, another thing, always have a, a sportsman's blanket, like an emergency blanket, because it's got a million uses. That's actually, I've always, and what's crazy is following certain principles of life you carry those things in certain places, right? So my wife's car has emergency blankets. My truck, my car, they all have emergency blankets. They've got tourniquets. They've got, you know, all kinds of first aid stuff. And then, yet my hunting pack didn't. It just, until recently, and then I started thinking about it and, you know, listening to certain people like Fieldcraft and other things like that, you're like, man, why... Why in that aspect of my life don't I do the first aid? I do it in other places, and I carry a couple Band-Aids and stuff, but why wouldn't I carry something that could potentially save my life, especially if I'm by myself? It just never never occurred to me. So I hope other people are listening and think, you know what, maybe that's not that bad of an idea to put a tourniquet in because that's that's mm-hmm. so important. Man, I can't even stress that enough. And and now that it's in there, I don't even think anything of it, but I know it's in there at least. And that's, that's like, yeah. And, and there's old school 
thoughts, right? Like uh, a lot of people think like, oh, I'm just going to take my belt off and I'm going to make a, make a tourniquet with a belt and a stick. And I'm going to tell you right now that talk to people who spent time in the military who are working in the front lines in the hospitals who put tourniquets on on a daily basis. And they'll tell you that a belt and a stick does very little to occlude the, the bleeding, right? It's It's something that I mean, you'd really have to crank hard, and a lot of belts aren't going to give you that. Um, a tourniquet is really purpose-driven. And, you know, if you if you want to use a, a computer to bang in a nail, go ahead. I'd rather use a hammer. You know, like, <laughs> Absolutely. Like, like it, dri- it drives me nuts when people are like, oh, I could just do this. It's like, well, yeah, you could, but if carrying it is really not that much of a deal and, you know, that big of a deal, and if buying it is 25 bucks. Uh, what's the issue? <laughs> you know, like yep. you're willing to spend 50 bucks on a box of premium hunting rounds uh, and you'll probably use two and you'll probably only carry five in the field at most for the weight of the other 15 rounds. You could carry three or four tourniquets if you really had to, you know, and it, yeah. it just drives me nuts. It's, yeah. like, it's such a, a worthwhile investment. And that's like, I've had, you mentioned that. And I've had a guy say to me when I've mentioned turn, what do you need a tourniquet for? I'll just use my belt. And he's wearing a leather belt. And I go, how many notches does that belt have? Can can you go down to the size of your leg? And he looks at me like, mm, yeah, okay. You know, but it made him think about it. And it's true. I mean, how are you going to get the belt that tight when it doesn't even have a notch to put, put your, you know, the buckle in? So. Right. Right. Yeah. What's, what's some other things that you would say as far as not necessarily first aid, but just skills that somebody would need to develop? Um, you know, I'm just a big fan of, of just general field craft. Um, I'm a fan of just understanding how to look at the resources that I have and how to apply them to coming up with a solution. Um, a couple of years ago, I was helping a buddy who was involved in a long distance marathon slash shooting event called the Darren Fink sniper challenge. And I showed him, Hey, look, if you have some paracord, and you've got uh, some sticks laying around. Here's how you can build a tripod. And with myself and my buddy Pacifico Flores and my buddy Dwayne Unger and, and Dave Middleditch, we're all sitting around talking to my buddy, you know, we call him Chainsaw. All talking to Chainsaw, and we're like, dude, think about what you could do. So now we're sitting there with a tripod, and we're out at 100 yards with rifles, and we're like, okay, let's see if we can get a decent grouping with this. And we're hanging the rifle, we're putting it on top of the tripod and kind of like the crotch of the three sticks. And he was blown away. He's like, wow, that instantly increases my ability to have a more durable platform to shoot from than just standing, you know, and it took less than a minute to, to assemble. And we started weighing like, okay, imagine if you had, say, five minutes to set up a perfect shot, you could easily do that with the right gear. But you'd have to know, like, if I just have sticks and some paracord, I can make a solution. So that's field craft. Um, you know, people may not realize, like, okay, some of the knots. Like, there are certain knots that will help you as an outdoorsman. Um, I usually carry a length of of half-inch climbing webbing um, that I think is, like, 15 or 20 feet long. And I know that I can easily tie a loop and I can use that for a deer drag and I can take the other end and I can put it around a stick and using a rolling hitch with a couple half hitches, I can create like a T handle that allows me to drag something very, very easily, you know, and that's 
just carrying a, a, a piece of cordage. Um, so I think cordage skills are really important. I think just learning camp craft skills uh, are, it's just incredibly important too, because you will find a use for it. Um, you'll be able to apply those skills from one discipline to another, from, from hunting to fishing, to camping, to boating, to, to whatever you do. Absolutely. That's like, I don't want to really throw my cousin under the bus, but I'm going to anyway. When we went out, um, we went out on an elk hunt and we were camping and, and, uh, it was like day three and he looks at me and he goes, man, I think I overestimated myself. And I go, like, what, what, do, what do you mean? Like, we've been talking about this for a year and you're now telling me like what you want to go home. And he's like, no, I just, I don't think I could do much more camping. And I'm like, how did we get this far in the process without you actually realizing? And he's like, I just, I overestimated myself. He's like, I like certain things and, and uh, I've gone long enough without them. And I'm like, I, to, it boggled my mind, but I guess some people, you know, there's certain things that they haven't been uncomfortable enough to make themselves feel like they're comfortable being uncomfortable, I guess would be the only way I can like describe it. But I couldn't, I couldn't fathom it. And, and it just, makes me think how many more people are out there that have never put themselves in a situation but can think they can do it and then end up getting in. I mean, you, we could have been in a lot worse shape. Say we were 10 or 12 miles deep. Now what's he going to do? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's, so what would you say to people like that that um, haven't really done something like that but think they want to go and do something? I think you have to just take it in incremental steps. Uh, you know, there, there's a, there's a, it's, it's a problem. Like people want to rush to conclusions. Uh, you can't trust the process. Um, I think it's really important that you, you understand your limits. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I'm known for in the survival community is, is my mindset. And the mindset that I have is through, you know, training with guys who, uh, like, you know, uh, Monotu on Chris Syok, Tuan Tom Kyer, like these guys who teach mindset for a living, martial artists. And the mindset can be applied to the business world, it can be applied to the survival community, it can be applied to hunters, it can be applied to anything. And it's the idea of readiness, right? You need to seriously ask yourself, are you ready? And readiness has three components. Readiness has awareness, it has willingness, and it has preparedness. W awareness is simply understanding right? Uh, having book knowledge, like we talked about before, uh, it could be tracking data on your person, personal abilities, right? Like how much, uh, can, how far can you run before you have to stop that type of thing? Uh, preparedness is the gear that you carry, you know, uh, what's the capability of your firearm, your, your bow, uh, how good are you in low light conditions, that type of thing. And then the willingness is very difficult to, to measure other than asking yes, no questions, right? Like, okay, are you willing to walk 10 miles? Well, yeah. Are you, you better be honest. Well, okay, I am, you know, and if you are able to answer those honestly, then you can assess someone's readiness. The problem is a lot of people aren't willing to admit their limitations and that's going to get them into trouble. It's, it's going to uh, give them false expectations of what their capability is and what it all boils back down to is honesty. Um, 
so what I would tell people to do is like, seriously ask yourself, are you the same person you were five years ago? And if you're not, why is that? Um, it's so easy to wake up in the morning and be like, okay, I'm going to go get that bagel with triple butter and, you know, the sausage and the egg and, and cover it in mayonnaise and this and that, like whatever. But you have to think like, okay, is that, is that food option going to really pay off in the long run? Right. Because in, in the game of being ready, it's more of a marathon than it is a sprint. And you can't assume like your actions one day aren't going to slowly measure up uh, over time, you know? So I think that's a, an important thing for people to realize is like, okay, if you really want to assess your readiness, you've got to be honest. Um, I can lie all day and say that I'm the man that I was when I was 18, but I know that my body has changed since I was 18. <laughs> I know that my outlook on life has changed. Um, and that's something that you need to, to talk about with anyone you go out with. Um, because if you don't, then you're going to set yourself up for these uh, these surprises that aren't going to be welcomed. Absolutely. I know I'm not the man I was 10 years ago when I go to drag a deer. <laughs> yeah, or, you know, and we might, here's the thing, we, we might be different, and we are going to be different, but we can be stronger in different ways. You know, we might not be as, as resilient, you know, like I'm not going to, I'm not going to go out like I used to when I was in college and stay out till four in the morning and then realize I've got a seven thirty class and, you know, power through it and be fine for the day. I know now, like if I hang out with a couple of friends and I have a couple of bourbons, I'm pretty much done for the night. You know, like yeah. I'm, I'm a lightweight. Um, but I know that if I had to meet the 22 year old version of myself, and get into a fight, I would win. Uh, I know that if I had to meet the 22-year-old version of myself and say, look, hey, we're going to the woods and we're going to see who can last longer, I'm going to win. So even though we change in some ways and we can see ourselves as not being as good, we really need to change that perspective and realize how we're better. You know, And that's part of that positive mindset, that, that positive mental attitude that so many people in the survival community talk about. Yeah, definitely. Kind of reminds me of some other things, like, for instance, I still think I'm strong enough to lift certain things or, or move certain things, and then my dad will be watching me, and he'll make a fulcrum and a, and a lever and move it and go, why are you doing things so hard? And I'm like, I don't know. I, I still want to be the same person I was 10 years ago. And he's like, that's pretty dumb. But, you know, simple things like that that just – I guess over time you, you realize your age and then you find a better way to adapt and overcome it. Hell, I just took a nap on my, my recliner this afternoon and that made me realize that, you know, my neck is a little sore and that never would have happened 20 years ago. But, you know, that's just from a nap. Naps are essential, I think. <laughs> but <laughs> Naps are good. I agree with you, though. Yeah, you learn things. But um, it's been awesome talking to you. I appreciate your input and definitely coming on with all the knowledge that you have. And man, I'd be so interested in talking to you again and we can really expand it even more at some point. But um, can you tell people where they can find you before we go and kind of. Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I can, I can be found on online. Uh, my social media is uh, Instagram. That's where I tend to put most of my stuff. Uh, it's Estella Wild Ed. That's short for Estella Wilderness Education. Uh, if you just look up my name, Kevin Estella, E-S-T-E-L-A, you should be able to find me. Uh, you can Google my name and you can see a bunch of articles that I've written. You can find my book on Amazon. Uh, pretty soon you're going to find me full-time with Fieldcraft Survival. Uh, I'm moving out to Utah. I'll be working full-time as a survival instructor and doing a number of uh, different job functions with them, including uh, product development and stuff like that. Um, but here's the thing. I always tell people um, I'm approachable, right? So feel free to shoot me any questions. Um, I'm happy to answer them for you. Um, as things get a little bit crazier over on this end with a lot of travel and, and working more with this company, um, I might not be super quick to get back, but I will always send an answer. Um, you know, I'll always let you know that I'm reading it. So feel free to reach out to me whenever. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenge.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. to go like just full-blown redneck on these fish. This is like high-tech cane pole fishing right here. From the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters, enjoy the best fishing Panama City Beach has to offer during Chasing the Sun, Sundays at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.